Hello friends, I'm your host Chris Thrill, I'm a former Royal Marines Commando, I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt Podcast. Duncan, how are you brother? Uh, I'm well and uh, can I say thank you very much for inviting me on your podcast? Hey, the honour is all mine. Um, you look like you're on a life raft. <laughs> well, yes, I've, I've just paused the ocean for a moment just for this uh, podcast, but uh, I'll get it going again soon. It's quite, a, quite appropriate for our uh, Marines background that you're, you, that you're at sea. Actually, it's the North Sea, so yeah, it is very appropriate. Yeah. Spent and, um, a lot of time swimming around in that lot, um, you know, in my younger days. I bet, and I tell you what, that, that it, you know, I've done a bit of scuba diving. I've done a bit of dry suit diving. I've scuba dived in Antarctica, which was just a whole kind of just one of those set of pressures that you've got to get your head around, you know, the temperature, the, the safety and all that kind of stuff. In fact, on our first dive, one of our divers drowned, just to give you an idea, you know, to give our friends at home an idea of these, th- these things that we do aren't, you know, you've got to take them a bit seriously, right? But, mm. but none more so in the special boat service, mm. um, which is your... Your background, Duncan. How did you have a guy drown? <laughs> I mean, it, who was the instructor? It, it was a girl, and it was awful. Um, sorry, I, I didn't mean to be laughing. Sorry, it sounds no, really no, bad. no, 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 no. I, mean, uh, you I know, meant that, the concept, you know. You know, we got to remember in this day and age where there's people telling us we can't laugh at stuff. That no, laughter is the best medicine, and it's it's military parlance. It, it's but, um, it, okay, in a nutshell, when you dive in Antarctica and you go on an uh, expedition ship, you, they, they give you a set criteria of your training, what, what, what you should have achieved by the time you go down there, okay? Um, to someone like you, it would be, you've, you've probably done it a thousand times over, right? But, but for your novice, it, it's, let, let's just say, 29 hours operating in a dry suit, which for anyone listening is a completely different buoyancy system to a wetsuit. And it can be quite, quite finicky to suss. Um, you need to have X amount of dive hours in a cold water environment. So basically what they're saying is don't think if you've been scuba diving, you know, in Thailand on your holiday that you can go to Antarctica and it's going to be the same completely different set of sort of parameters and we got down there and immediately on our first dive we went out in gemini so rigid inflatable boats and it just became apparent some people hadn't had this experience i don't know how they'd wangled it but again cutting a long story short this uh, japanese girl went off with her dive buddy who happened to be their tour guide. And 
immediately she like popped up feet first, which is air in the legs of the suit, which if you've done dry suit diving, you know there's a drill that you you get around that sort of thing. The dive master or the guy manning the 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 boat handed her more weight, which is not the right thing to do in 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 I'm just talking you know from my humble opinion it it her issue wasn't weight it was her her buoyancy in the water and her balance in the water cut a long story short she was holding on to the boat and then another girl popped up having difficulties if i say she was in a pink dry suit i think that kind of highlights the the different levels of seriousness to which people take a very serious sport so the dive guy whacked the boat in reverse she zoomed over to this girl the trouble was this couple these japanese couple were still holding on to the front of the boat and the water started like surfing over their faces and in that confusion of basically it's our first dive in antarctica it's sub freezing water we're all kick gearing up we're all doing dive checks with our buddies in in that confusion this girl let go of the boat um her dive partner let go of the boat let's just say 10 seconds later and it was just a situation where you think, well, these guys must know what they're doing. We're supposed to be trained to be down here, right? Cut long story short, she went down and she never came back up. I, I, I'm guessing while she was holding on to the rib, her her uh, air came out of her mouth. So it's flailing around somewhere behind her. In the meantime, this dive guy's giving her all this extra weight, which, which, which as I said, probably wasn't the... Um, the cure for that problem so she's dropped like a stone and of course if you haven't got your regulator in your mouth you you the, the temptation is to panic whereas the rest of us clear-minded would would just drop our weights and come to the surface and guessing she was scrabbling around for air and, and she drowned and uh it was um mm. yeah it was an eye-opener it was very well obviously extremely tragic the, the, the problem for our expedition then came in as like, would the whole expedition ship have to sail back to Argentina um, to re repatriate her body? Fortunately, her family were very gracious and went, no, we don't want to stop a whole expedition. I mean, there was, there were hundreds of people on this expedition. You, you carry on. So they put her body in cold storage and, um, they fell us divers in the next day and said, right, guys, we, you know, we know that you won't want to dive anymore. So we're going to find something else for you to do on the ship. <laughs> and everyone's like, uh, no, we, we came down here to dive. That we, that's what we're going to do. And it was really good, good, good credit to the dive team that they, that, that we continued. Um, so yeah, did you have anything in your career that was, Similar to that, Duncan, did you did you witness any deaths underwater? Oh God, yeah. Uh, what my first um, so when I when I did selection, finished selection, my first diving task was uh, up in Scotland, 
um, where we were, the SBS was pioneering exit and re-entry uh, from submarines. So that means that while the submarine's under the water, um, divers inside the submarine um, goes into a, a chamber, if you like, um, a small chamber. The chamber fills up with water. Then the hatch is opened and the divers can come out uh, onto the submarine while it's underwater and basically go to the surface and then uh, whatever your operation is, get a boat, swim in, get a canoe, swim in, whatever, uh, all your equipment, whatever. Um, and then when you come back, you do the whole thing in reverse. Um, and we were, we were, there was no one in the world doing this. Um, uh, as you, uh, the SBS was pioneering this. And um, I just arrived in Scotland and um, I was heading to Gerlock um, to get a boat to meet the submarine. And there was a team of SBS lads on the submarine. And um, so there was four of them inside this chamber. Um, it's, it's quite horrendous, actually, the very first time you do it. You, you have all your equipment, and that includes weapons and stuff and your dry bag and your uh, spare diving bottle, which is a Raber, which is a small thing um, that lasts about 10 minutes, plus your um, um, you know, various pieces of equipment. And you, you leave the submarine and you squeeze through this hatch. And then you get into this chamber, which is a bit like um, – it's a bit like two or three washing machines about the size. So you get to the end and you, you're in the fetus position with your knees up against your chin. Um, it's a very tight, tight cylinder. There's only one little light in there. And there's a, there's a mask which you breathe off, air which you're breathing off the submarine. The next person gets in and sits opposite you. Uh, the third person gets in and sits beside you. The fourth person gets in and sits opposite the third person. And then the fifth person, in order to close the hatch, has to get in and lie on top of you, which is a really tight squeeze now, because you're all curved over. It's like, a, it's like a bean can shape. And then when they close the hatch, he can then go back and sit on the hatch. And so you're all crushed in, and then they flood the chamber, and the water comes in, and they say, there's only this one little light. Um, and that's the very first time I did it. I thought, what do I do if I, my air stops? Um, and there is one spare uh, breathing tube for all of you. Um, and so then the water floods in, and um, most people have some level of claustrophobia. Um, if you've got claustrophobia, um, this is not a place to be. But fortunately, we used to, um, back in the pool, in the swimming pool, we had a 16-foot deep swimming pool, we had this tube that... Um, we used to practice going into and one person would go in with um, with a scuba tank and then he would call to the end and then the next person would come in and next to you and you'd share the scuba tank so you'd buddy breathe off two of you and then the third person would come in and then the fourth person and you buddy breathe off the four of you now I don't know if you've ever buddy breathed two people sometimes it's hair raising enough but here you are in this tube, and if you run out of here, you've got to wait for the other three people to get out before you can get out. Um, and they've got to be aware that you're in trouble. And so that's the training that we had, we did. So that kind of gets you used to the mental anguish of being trapped inside a cylinder full of water. So back to the submarine. So there you are, um, filled with water, and uh, you're in there for 20, 25, 30 minutes. And just hearing the bongs of the submarine. 
and you've you've got to go into a kind of a trance otherwise if someone panics you're screwed you know you if someone went nuts you there's nothing you could do because the submarine would have to surface and then open the hatches the whole thing would take four or five minutes and so you know if anyone lost their breathing tube you'd die so um so then you wait until uh, the submarine has reached its location and its periscope depth and then there'll be a bang on the side of the submarine and then you'd open the outer hatch and you'd all one by one um lie, get ready to climb out of the hatch and what you do is you come off the submarine then you come onto a very small bottle which lasts about as i say about 10 minutes at 30 feet 10 meters and when you're out you go along the casing you follow a line if you can't see anything and most get most times you can't see much you follow a line to um, a cave, if you like, a dugout, what we call it, the bear trap, which is a kind of a where they remove plates from the submarine so you can go down back into the surface of the submarine, but you're still in the water. And then you plug into a big bottle. And then you all join together and you're all plugged into this big bottle. And then, then when it's ready to go, you go to the surface. Now, one of the problems in Scotland that we discovered was the the water the sea the sea locks their sea locks their their seawater locks but here's a phenomena that um the SBS discovered I'm sure the submariners knew it long before and that is that when you get rainfall coming off the mountains you get these large uh, these streams coming down into the locks you get masses of fresh water coming into the lock and it can sort of, it, it doesn't mix immediately with the seawater. It, it can be hundreds of yards long, like a huge bubble, which you can't see, and you can't see it on sonar. But when a submarine goes into this freshwater patch, freshwater is less dense than seawater. Things don't float as well in freshwater as they do in seawater. And um, they have this um, cute phrase for it. It's called an excursion which to me sounds like a holiday, but it's anything far from a holiday if you're actually by this stage outside the submarine because what happens, it's like going off a waterfall. The submarine literally goes off a waterfall into this freshwater patch and nosedives and plummets, and it can plummet hundreds of feet. On this occasion, there was, um, this submarine was doing, we were, there were the lads were practicing exit and re-entry. I was on a boat just up, the lock coming towards the submarine with um, the, the new SBS lads. There were, and the first thing we knew that there was a problem was there was a big um, rigid, uh, a Gemini, big Gemini black job attached to the periscope with a couple of SBS guys in it as safety. And the periscope, you couldn't see the submarine, obviously, just the periscope. And next thing, this huge rubber boat just upends nose down and goes down into the water because it's tied to the submarine. And then, of course, it's, it's so big, this Gemini, that um, it's not going to go underwater. And so it, the line just ripped apart and this Gemini came flying out of the water. Obviously, everyone's in the water. So clearly the submarine had dropped. Um, unfortunately, the four SBS guys were in various stages of coming out of the chamber. And um, the submarine must have gone down about two or three hundred feet. 
Now, the problem is, um, if you're on your breathing bottles, two of the lads are on their little, what they call rabers, uh, not plugged into the submarine. So I said it's about 10 minutes at 10 metres. Well, uh, at 100 metres, just a few seconds. And um, they fell off the submarine. They died, drowned. Um, one, of the, one, of, one of the guys um, came, peeled off the submarine as it was plummeting. And he just got to the surface. He had no air left, and he only just got to the surface. So that was my introduction to um, the SBS. And um, we would average um, one diver every few years lost mm. in various various things. I guess it's the unanticipated, isn't it, that... that... <laughs> but then again, not always... Uh... I guess panic is something that really doesn't go well with diving, does it? No. In fact, um, it's interesting that, um, again, going back to claustrophobia, I read a statistic that one in seven people have claustrophobia but don't know it. Um, And one of the reasons why the SBS selection um, has a, a lower pass rate than the SAS selection, it's a combined selection course now, but... Um, but once you've finished the combined selection course, then the SBS members go off and do the diving section. So their, their selection process continues. And um, some of them actually don't know that they have claustrophobia. Uh, I remember when I was um, in the SBS uh, in my early days, um, several um, Australian uh, SAS guys. We were the, the British SBS was affiliated with the Australian SAS for some reason. Um, I never quite understood that. We would have we had an exchange draft with them, and they would often send lads over um, to play, and we'd go and play with them. And um, but Australia, they used to always um, uh, uh, them diving like the uh, SEAL teams it is mostly in bathwater. It's in beautiful viz. Um, I, at this point, I'd been diving for probably a year now and I'd never, ever had a dive that I could see more than my extended hands. Once in a while, uh, there was a bit of viz, maybe five or six or ten feet, but generally, no. You know, you had your compass board and if you put it at arm's length, it started to disappear. Mm-hmm. And that, that was I thought that was SBS dive. I thought that was diving. That was it. You, you actually never saw anything. And um, these uh, couple of these um, Aussie lads came over, uh, young young SAS lads, um, and uh, been diving in 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 wonderful sort of of like clear viz, and um, came and dived with us. And two of them um, had claustrophobia and and didn't know it, and they actually they actually couldn't dive with us because uh, they 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 suffered too much from from the claustrophobia. Yeah, it can come on down there. I'm. I'm only talking of my own experience. I always thought I was really cool with diving. I, I did the sports diving thing first. I started, I learned, I was actually taught by, by the Navy while I was in the Marines. And um, when I went to dry suit diving, it just brought with it a load of added problems, let's just say. And that was in the form of the buoyancy because you're not just managing one, um, your buoyancy jacket, so your stability jacket, I think the Americans call it. You're manage- managing your stability jacket and your actual dry suit. 
Um, so there's two, two, and you've got air going into both. And I found that really hard to manage. I don't know if it's because I had a near, a, 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 a hardened neoprene wetsuit. It was a really good wetsuit, but I don't know if that was an issue. But one dive I went on, my God, I, I just started to experience what I guess you would say was a panic attack. Mm. Um, and that is just not, it's the last thing you want when you're, we weren't deep. We, we were probably about 15 meters down. We were diving on a wall in, in Plymouth and it, I was so lucky that my body was just going, he's just doing that calm. And he's, I could see him checking his computer as, as we surface. He's going right wait, and I, I'm literally I'm in this panic mode, but I'm looking at him and just taking all my cues from him. Mm. But my brain, the irrational side of my brain, is going get up to the surface, get up to this, and of course you 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 can't do that. You're going to suffer an embolism or something, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, it just reminded me the um, diving with various suits, and um, when I I took a break from the Marines uh, SBS for a while and I got a job out in um, in um, Nigeria um, diving and I was working for this company and we were capping wellheads about 10 miles off the coast and my very first job because they're all ex-military on this and so they've still got the military sense of humor and I and I we flew out in this helicopter to this um, this moon pool ship and basically it's a boat with a, a swimming pool cut out the middle it looks like a swimming pool but actually it's the ocean there is no there is no bottom to it. And so, um, and so that's where all the operations are led by. And um, they, they said, who wants to do this first dive? And I just, and people looked at me and said, let, let, um, let the new lad do. And I said, yeah, not a problem. And um, what was great, it was, um, I, uh, I, I said, where's the wetsuit? They said, we, we don't dive in wetsuits. We dive in boiler suits, cloth boiler suits. And I, went, and I thought it was a bit of a bite at first, you know, because we were wearing Kirby, Kirby Morgan a bite being a joke. Um, we're wearing Kirby Morgan band mask, which is this um, umbilical system. So you didn't have any tanks, but the water was warm enough down. And this wellhead I was capping was down at about 140 feet to the seabed. And, um, and uh, so I, I, I put the gear on the boiler suit on and climbed down a ladder and off I went, grabbed the weight and you just went down and it was absolutely lovely. Um, diving and doing a really deep dive and in, in just um a boiler suit with just swimming trunks underneath and a pair of um um trainers it's actually um when i got to the bottom i got to the wellhead i actually found the wellhead it took me a while to find it and, and the cap which weighs about a ton they were sending it down one of the guys got on the radio and said um so do you know why um you're doing this dive and i said yeah because i'm the new boy he said no this is the breeding ground for hammerhead sharks and no one else is stupid enough to go down there. So um, that's why we haven't, the new boy always do it. You know. So that was nice. I spent half an hour down there um, capping this wellhead just every now and then looking over my shoulder. Um, didn't see any sharks. I'm sure they were you know, teasing. <laughs> but lovely diving in a, in a lovely diving in a boiler suit without all the problems of, you know. Yeah. It's funny that because I, when I've been out on my travels in the world, and I've, for people listening, I've 
basically traveled everywhere I ever wanted to. So that's 80 different countries around the world. And I've tried to dive wherever there was diving on offer. So such places as, you know, Thailand, for example, Philippines, this kind of thing. But even there in the tropical water, I would need to wear two wetsuits. This is already start. I, I get this is already starting to sound bizarre, but no, I'm being honestly serious. You, you get your kind of three mil wetsuit. Um, and what would happen is, as I found when I got below a certain depth, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to say probably we're talking about 20 meters, maybe 15, 20 meters. There was a distinct temperature change in the water. It felt like you went from tropical into like normal, <laughs> probably not British normal, but, and what they would do for us guys that, because if you're diving and, and you're shivering, you're, you're no good to yourself and you're certainly no good to your buddy. And, and after, um, you know, 20 minutes diving, you just start to just get this shiver coming on. So they would issue us a short, what they call a shorty. So a short wetsuit. And we wear that over our <laughs> over our long one. So, but but while we were doing this, there were guys that didn't wear any wetsuit, and there was even one guy. He was a local islander. This was in um, uh, Central America. I'm just checking my map. I think it was off off Honduras, an island called Utila. There was one local guy, he would swim down to 40 meters where the divers were in just a pair of shorts holding his breath. And he'd swim along alongside you and wave. And he's just one of these guys he'd acclimatized to it for so many years. He could swim down this ridiculous, maybe not 40 meters. I'm, I'm that, that. That's probably not accurate. I don't know, but he certainly could go down like 20 and he'd hold his breath and he'd, he'd swim mm. alongside you. It, and it kind of made a mockery of, of, of all the technology we were, we were using. Um, yes. Yeah, I, I, my first river dive in, in the Delta in Nigeria, uh, again, I was, I, was, I was new to Africa in those days and, uh, I was going to, it was, um, it was, a uh, again, Kirby Morgan umbilical cord. Uh, I was going to go down and just check some, check some engineering. And, uh, I was going to do it in my swim trunks. And one old boy said, um, you, you, you don't want to dive around here, um, in your swimming trunks, even though the water's warm. I said, why not? He said, it's snakes. Um, you know, there's one, one bite from the snakes and it's lethal. And, uh, there was a slightly bit of a wind up, but, but, um, because yes, most of, the river snakes in that area are lethal if you get bitten, but they've got such small mouths that they actually can't, they couldn't bite your leg. Um, but, um, but, but for instance, one time I was working down at about 40, 50 feet and I felt this pecking on my hand. Like it was like a pigeon just gently pecking my hand and, and I couldn't sort of see much. And as the, I, I sort of moved the dust a bit and it was a snake trying to, um trying to bite me but they can't get their mouths open but the, the bit that's dangerous is the skin between your fingers you know the web yeah yeah so if you open your hand and the snake gets that then then um then it's it's quite serious 
so yeah so we used to dress dress up <laughs> just because i didn't want any um snakes uh, biting me under the water duncan let's talk about you joining the marines then because did i i i i, I should say i read your fantastic book um there we go for our friends at home first into action a dramatic personal account of life in the sbs absolutely thoroughly recommended reading for any kind of adventure time what i will say is after i wrote my first memoir which is eating smoke i started to get messages saying have you read duncan's book and of course i was you know onto amazon well, what's this all about oh my gosh yes i would definitely read that so my point is it was 10 years about 10 years ago i read this or or it, it was certainly a few years ago. So apologies if my memory is not is not all that it probably used to be. But I did gather you you were one of the youngest people ever to uh, to go on selection. Um, normally, you join the Royal Marines, you pass that training, you get your Greenberry you go to a commander unit, you're kind of expected to spend maybe like three years there getting uh, getting your experience, maybe a tour of Northern Ireland, Norway, whatever, which was, which was my case. Um, but don't you hold the kind of esteem that you went straight to the SBS? Yeah, it's a, it's a strange sort of story. Um, I'll try and keep it brief, but... It, it, it probably won't happen again. Um, I, when I joined up, there was the, uh, when I joined the Marines, and first of all, I, I left London. I didn't know what I wanted to do in my life. And I, I just, I just joined the Marines to escape. Um, I didn't realize what a great organization it was. And I came to really love it. But, um, but when I first joined up, it was this, you know, this military me. Anyway, I joined, I joined the Marines with a hundred blokes. And, um, but at the same time, the SBS, which I'd never even heard of. And, and no one had heard much about the SAS or the SAS, unless you were enthusiasts. Um, you know, the Iranian embassy siege hadn't happened then. And, um, and so uh, people just thought that was a Second World War thing. Uh, even when I was joining up, people used to... I remember PWs, platoon weapons instructors, when on your um, uh, commando training. I remember going to Woodbury Common, and uh, if there were areas that you weren't allowed in... Um, you know, because they were private or plantations, the instructors would say, "Quite uh, the SBS are operating there, or the SAS are operating there." So you, those are out of bounds. If you go in there, you'll get shot. I actually came to realise how important that was because I lost a mate um, years later in Ireland because of the military ignoring boundaries, um, regular military ignoring SF boundaries. Um, but going back to uh, 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 commando training I didn't um, I'd never heard of the SBS anyway cut to Paul at the same time they were opening up in the North Sea and the SBS was only about 75 guys in those days and um, and they started climbing all platforms again no one else in the world was doing it it was a purely a um, British thing um, uh, just in case terrorists took over our North Sea oil which was very important to our economy um the SBS were gonna take those all platforms back. And um but here's another phenomena was that the North Sea was really young and 
Um, in those early days, and back in the mid-70s, um, you, you've mentioned how you've gone off and done diving. You couldn't do that in those days. There were, there were no dive schools. There were no civilian dive schools. You, you didn't go to Malta and go down to the quay and let's go diving. There was no such thing. Um, there was a, the only two civilian divers was Jacques Cousteau, his brother, and some other guy. You know, I mean, there was, there was no one else was doing it. Jacques Cousteau, by the way, invented the uh, scuba tank. Um, and uh, it, that's how new it was. The only divers were military, really. You know, there's a handful of civvies, but they were just Navy divers. So, so when the oil industry kicked in, especially with his oil platform, they needed divers and they needed hundreds of them. And where were they going to come from? Well, they had to come from the military. So here's the SBS now climbing all platforms. Um, and uh, when they were getting to the top of these all platforms, they were met by, you know, oil executives saying, how much do you get paid a day? You know, which was probably, what, three quid a day in those days or something. How would you like 60 quid a day? Uh, all right, I've got the figures wrong, but probably not that far off. In, in other words, that comparison which made you smile, that's what, you know, lads were going, what, 60 quid a day? Yes, where do I sign? And so the SBS, in the period of a few months, lost um, quite a number of blokes to the North Sea. But uh, droves of them went, you know, and in fact, for years, um, there was just, uh, SBS were diving um, supervisors, etc., all over the North Sea. Anyway, so, um, so, the MOD were faced with this problem that um, the SBS was suddenly shrinking. Um, and so they immediately brought in special forces pay, diving pay, and MOD said, right, we need to bolster the numbers. So now cut back to me on my uh, commando training course. Just got to the end of my course, 25 of us out of 100, and uh, chuffed to bits. I still had only signed up for three years, and... Um, but um, I'm kind of looking forward to going to a commando unit. So, um, in, as you know, in the Marines, uh, at the end of your commando training, when you get your green lid, um, you're invited into a personnel selection officer who then distributes young bootnecks around the corps, driver, you know, bottle washer, chef, and in my case, um, clerk. And I was, like, horrified and... Uh, I said, I, I, I don't want to be a clerk. I want to be a soldier. And, um, and he said, well, you can, you can be a clerk first and a soldier. And he tried to sell me, you know what they're like, they sell you this bag of rubbish. I mean, we all know that, uh, I mean, the clerks do a great job, but it's not the same thing. And, uh, and there was a sign in the hallway which said, um, that had just said, join the SBS or something. And I just said, I want to join the SBS. I had no idea what the SBS was. Duncan, I'm just thinking of our friends at home. Clerk is like secretary, right? That- yes, sorry, yeah, that's right. Yeah, a pen pusher, arsewipe, um, whatever they call them. Um, <laughs> sorry, profanity, must cut that out. But that is what they called them. Uh, a shiny ass, wasn't it? A shiny ass, someone yeah. who sits on a chair all day. And um, arsewipe is something else. And, um, yeah, so pen pusher. And so, uh, yeah, horrified. And, uh, and this personnel selection officer said to me, listen, you can do three years as a clerk and then get all the training you want. And then you can join the SBS because you need to do three years before you can join the SBS in a commando unit. And so I left there actually quite depressed. I actually went back to my grot. 
And lads were coming in, what you do? I'm going to such and such commando. I'm, I'm a driver down, I'm a pen pusher, you know, down in Plymouth or something. I don't know. And I was really quite pissed off. Um, meanwhile, what I didn't know was that this MOD notice going, had gone out to say, you know, we need, um, we need a large number of uh, SBS recruits because we need to bolster up the SBS, went to Limston. And for the first time ever, um, the PSIs were said, we need a batch of recruits. We just need to get the numbers up for the selection course. And so they had a, I don't know if they had a, I don't know what the deal was, but they actually, I was invited to come back in um, and I first, I stepped in, I had this big speech all prepared as to why I would make the worst clerk in the world and why I shouldn't do it. And before I could open my mouth, the, piece, the personnel selection officer said, be careful what you wish for. Uh, he said, you're, you're off down to Paul to do one of the hardest special forces selections in the world. He says, you're never going to pass, um, you know, and, um, you know, it's a waste of time, but I have to give you, uh, I have to send you because I'm looking for 15 recruits, of which he did. He found 15. Um, two others uh, uh, from my, um, my troop. And I was the youngest at uh, 18. And so um, I believe that made me the youngest I went down to Paul and I made me the youngest recruit. Um, but here's another thing that was interesting, which I only found out afterwards. Um, MOD, in their wisdom, and as we know them, it's, a, it's an odd organisation. I, I like to joke made up of people who couldn't make it in Civvy Street uh, or too afraid to make it in Civvy Street. Um, so I'm going to get panned for that one. Um, and some of them are my mates, 60 years old, people that have never been civilians and think they know everything anyway but let's let's pound the mod another time um <laughs> in their wisdom they um they told the sbs brilliant news we've got 150 or in this case 147 recruits coming down to do sbs selection um but the sbs said well wait a minute that's all well and good but we're only equipped to take so many people and the reason is, is because the SBS selection course is designed through history that we only have 40 or 50 guys or 60 guys maximum turn up and only three or four of a pass. And the final exercise in those days was designed for about eight people because that's the most it ever got to the last week in the four month grueling selection course. And that's how it was designed. Society, it's not because, um, it's not because that's that that's how many they wanted. There's a there's a, a statistic about society it produces so many doctors, so many criminals, so many um, surgeons, and so many special forces. You know, it, society can only produce given the number of of the population. And for the UK, um, we produce about ten SBS blokes a year. You know, that's what society produces. Whatever. The th theory of chaos that you um, that you'd subscribe to, but um, so MOD coming up and telling the SBS that we've got 147. Basically, the SBS said that's fine, but only four or five are going to get out the other end because we can only get, you know, ten people on the final exercise. Um, and so what happened was us 147 people starting at the, in this, if you like, this pyramid of this 
funnel coming in, the same size hole was at the bottom. And so what they had to do was just make life a bit more difficult. Um, and so uh, us recruits, 15 recruits, well, we were first targets. I mean, no one talked to us. The regular blokes never spoke to us. I mean, we, we were we were the lowest forms of life. I mean, I was a complete noddy. I came to attention if someone came in my room. You know, if a court came, I did. Um, and I nodded. I was a noddy. I still nodded, uh, you know, when people talked to me. That's how green I, we were. I mean, it was ridiculous. What were we doing on this selection course? But um, but anyway, somehow, through my complete ignorance, um, I stayed on there. And, and, and two of the other guys from my troop were the only, the three of us were the only uh, recruits left. And we were there in the last week. And there were about 12 of us left. And nine of us passed the course. Uh, um, two guys, me and one other guy from my um, troop. And the other guy came off because um, um, broken leg, I think. And um, and at the very end, um, I got through. Um, I, I waited outside the office for my interview, thinking that they were going to say, well, don't know what you're doing here, mate, but sod off. Um, well done. And come back in three years. But they actually didn't. They said, well, we don't know what we're going to do with you. You've passed selection. You don't know anything. You know, 11 months ago, you were in school in London, and um, but you're in special forces. and um, But we're, we're going to try and get you up to speed. Um, three months later, I was sat outside Francis Hughes' house, waiting to ambush him with an SAS guy who must have thought, what the hell have they sent me? I'm, I'm going on an ambush with a child. I'm just, um, I'm just my, to draw a parallel... Imagine the Iranian embassy siege and you've got these guys on the balcony and flashbangs, a grenade are going off. One of them was in school nine months ago. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I probably would have made that selection. Um, uh, they wouldn't have hired me. I tell you what, the SAS were horrified. I was, we were attached to them in Northern Ireland. And I felt sorry for these poor lads because these I I was attached to a bunch of hard ass. Um, I can't remember if it was B Squadron or G Squadron, but they were hard ass vets of some of them from Aden. I mean, that war was gruesome, you know, yeah. um, Amani wars. Um, and I'm 19 years old, and I'm put in a room with them on briefings. Uh, and I, to this day, feel sorry for any of those SAS blokes. No wonder the SBS got such a reputation. I mean, these SAS blokes are going off saying, I'm going into the field with a child tomorrow. You know, he's not only a baby, he doesn't know anything. So, yeah, I, I, I did feel really bad about it in those days. No one was more conscious than me that I didn't know what I was doing. I should not have been there. But, um, hey, listen, within a year, I was pretty hardened and been and seen more than most people had by then and um by the time i was 20 21 i was uh i'd have to say i was very qualified to be where i was and then i joined 14 in was quite a hardened vet already at 21 years old duncan just let, let's just take this opportunity and, and we'll come back to your story which is just it's beyond fascinating it's this it's it's like the boys own for adults <laughs> that we all 
we all just uh, just I thank you so much for telling your story honestly but well, I it it guts me when I see people drawing comparisons between the SBS and the SAS in fact it's not the comparisons it's when they say there's a rivalry and my experience it's like when they say there's a rivalry between the paras and the marines and my experience and I know there kind of was off the back of the Falklands with the paras and the marines I I, I kind of get that but like it's to me it's so juvenile Maybe it's because I'm 50 years old now. It's so juvenile. The SBS are undoubtedly one of the most professional forces in the world. The SAS, if you ask me, they're almost like a completely different animal. Because when you operate with the SAS, and I've done it twice now, I've been, you know, in 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 that just say connected with them what one of those times was i shared a room with them on my paracourse right so it wasn't it's no i haven't got any hero tales to tell anyone but like they they just come across as i i, I, I want to say fucking savage like they just get on a job and and they're just bang on it and, and 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 i'm starting to waffle what, what what are we talking here when we're talking sbs SES? is there a different mentality is it because we're navy and these guys are or, or you, you you're navy and these guys are army what what are we talking it, here it's a really good question chris uh, first of all when you ask me i'm gonna have to tell you the history, I'm going to have to go back a few years and I can't talk for today, you know, what it's like today. I don't know many, or if I, no, I don't know any of the modern lads, but I knew a great deal about, so I can give you a slice of life in the 70s and 80s, what it was like. Um, and uh, when I wrote my book, I got some criticism because I, um, I did, uh, I probably didn't get the tone correct um, by saying that there was a division. And, and I, I, I don't think, I think people misun, people who thought that I said there was this huge barrier between us uh, or, or that we were battling each other uh, probably overread into it. Um, first of all, yes, there were, um, there was, um, there was a, 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 a wall between us both. There was uh, this feeling of um, the SS did look down on us. Um, in general, general, um, but that was a lot of the old and bold. But let's go back a little bit further. It's justified to a great deal. First of all, remember the SBS went into the doldrums for a, a long time, 20, 30 years where they did nothing, whereas the SAS continued to, um, and it's all up to the professionals of the commanders. Don't forget, it, 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 the SAS and the SBS had to had to create a purpose for themselves. That's their commander's job. It's just like any company. It had to show it was worthwhile, otherwise it was going to be disbanded. So the SAS continued to give itself a value. And if you look at their activities all the way back to the Second World War, they hardly stopped working. The SAS found themselves employment. A lot of the wars were unmentionables and things they can't really talk about. The Amani Wars, unofficial. 
you know, for years. But the SAS were absolutely amazing. Um, and all that time, the SBS did nothing. Really. I mean, I when I first joined the SBS, I almost got onto the tail end of the Armani War, and it, it was finished by the time I, I joined up. But other than that, the SPS had done a couple of beach recce's down there, and that was it. So, so the SAS were really working very hard and doing a lot of operations, and the SBS were not. We've got to be frank, apart from some actions in, in Indonesia and things like that, um, the in Indonesian War, where the SBS did fantastically, some of the old and bold there. Um, that was my impression, that the SBS had let grip uh, slip a bit on who they were and what their purpose was. And, and so um, the SAS got all the funding and they got all the good toys. And it wasn't until um, the brilliant Ram Seeger um, turned up, uh, commander of, um, of the SBS, in the early 70s, who looked at the North Sea and looked at everything and said, right, I'm going to put the SBS back on the map. I'm going to make them the greatest maritime special forces unit on the planet, which he did. And, but it takes a long time to do that. And we still had to go to the SAS for a lot of skills. They were, don't forget, the British special forces were pioneering nearly everything. Forget the Israelis. We were way above them, way beyond them. Yes. And they only had, um, you know, um, they're a specific enemy to deal with, but we had a global issue plus the Russians and, uh, and other issues. So, um, but the SES were pioneering things that no one else, no one else, no one was considering room entries at the level that the SAS was. Um, uh, Iranian embassy is a perfect example. And if you see that new film that just came out, I watched it the other day on the Iran, it's not bad. It's actually quite good. I mean, I worked with the team that did that job in um, in Ireland when I was doing that ambush. I was telling you as a young lad and worked. That was that was a team that went in and did that, um, and um, got some good mates who were on, on that operation. They were pirating that stuff um, when the Heckler and Cox system came in, which revolutionised room entries. I won't go into the technicalities of it, but basically allowed us to change from a pistol being the primary rudimentary weapon to an SMG becoming the primary, um, which gave us more stability, more accuracy, and more firepower. I had 30 rounds as opposed to 12 or 14. The SAS got all that gear first. We had to sit and wait for it to trickle down. And then they would come and show us how to use it. So, so we have that aspect first, where they were the mother unit, you know, and... So it took us a long time to stand on our own two feet. Um, and then what was left was there was a big residual of SAS lads, older guys, who always saw the SBS as um, very poor cousins. Um, it took a whole new generation, the new SBS guys coming in, mixing with the brand new generation of SAS guys to actually start to change that. I, I went to do a six weeks um, communication course in in 1976 at uh, in the Stirling Lines in Hereford and um, first week was you know, kind of muted um, here's a point every morning six o'clock the SBS went out and did a four or five mile run I in my whole time in Stirling I saw about three SAS guys out running mm -hmm. went down to the gym there was all the SBS lads were in the gym all the bootnecks 
It was about two or three SAS. That's a different story. We did have a completely different ethos when it came to fitness. The SAS um, couldn't hold a penny to a candle to um, the SBS's fitness generally, although they had some fantastic runners. Um, But they had individual efforts. They didn't have an ethos. The Marine ethos and the SBS ethos was the whole team had to had to get down and work out together. Going back to Sterling Lines, so after the first week, um, you know, got to know the young SAS lads. And then come Friday, we got there Sunday night. Come Friday evening, uh, the first Friday, I said to the SAS lad I was teamed up with, who was just a couple of years older than me, um, so you're going to take us ashore, you know, show us a run. And he took me to one side. He said, I can't. I said, well, what do you mean I can't? He said, uh, we've been told not to socialise with you lot. And and that was it. So we went ashore, the SBS went ashore on their own because um, the SAS were told not to, they were, the youngsters on our course were told by the old and bold not to socialise with that lot. So that was the general attitude. Um, but it was an old and bold thing. I'm I'm sure today now with the combined selection courses and we started to work more and more with Hereford, and I, I, I think we've matured through that now. And um, the SBS started to get funding, had some successes. Falklands was a great success um, for the SBS and many other operations. I would expect today that um, if any, any SAS blokes holds a grudge against the SBS, it, it's got to be something from victorian times you know i don't know where, yeah. where, where they get it from um and vice versa that's my opinion today and there's obviously a lot more detail behind that but yes there was but um it but but i but the sas was a, was the mother unit and it it, it it you know what i mean it was the great it was something that we aspired to let's face it the sbs had to use the sas as a target we want to be as great as those guys mm. You know, and I do believe we got there. Yeah, it's interesting you 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 say Duncan because I I I never knew there was any difference, and if I was honest, I always thought the SBS were kind of like the secret warriors that they, you know, they they had it all sus behind the scene. I this won't make a lot of sense to people to people at home who haven't been in the forces. But the Royal Marines recruit a different type of person to the parachute regiment. And this is not in any way a judgment. It's things are different. And and that's okay. Things are allowed to be different, right? And Mm. as such, you, you kind of get this soldier that's, or Marine that's, if I'm just to talk in blunt terms, it's almost like, they could be a bit middle class, whereas the paras recruit from like the hardest sink estates in Britain, like people that, um, yeah, tough, tough guys. <laughs> By nature of their life are, are, are naturally tough guys. And I kind of think you see that in the, um, in, in in subsequently the SBS and the SES, which recruit, I don't know if I'm right in saying predominantly from the paras. I know it's open to all to all to all um, regiments and 
even all probably all forces but but um yeah it... you know here's a statistic when i was in 60 percent of um all special forces uh came from the royal marines mm. but when you add them together you've got to add the sas the sbs and the um 14 in and of course because the sbs in those days only recruited marines but actually if you add them all together they all 60 uh, percent. that was an interesting statistic sorry i interrupted you no i think it's it's fascinating but i wish i could encapture for, for our friends at home this you know it's like i've been on operations with the sas only uh, we're talking northern ireland now in fact, I was only involved in one patrol. I'm not. I'm not trying to big myself up. I'm, I was. I was. I was. You know, my career is just what it was. But, but, ah, I, I. You know, I'm. I've got so much respect for those guys. Not. Not for any badge, but just because of who I met. They were such good guys. Um. They, I mean, I could say the names. I won't. I won't say the names, obviously. And I know that that our our service brothers and sisters listening will will know who who I'm talking about. Just really good, good guys that just wanted to be the the, the most professional soldiers they they could be. But then an, an, another sort of aside is fucking hell. They were animals in in when when things started going bang. They loved it. <laughs> they were just like, you know. Yeah. I, I, I spoke to. Chris, I, I thought about. I thought about this for years, and here's my analogy. Because I, go, I always love to go back into history if you want to find out what's him today. The difference between the Paras and the Marines, SAS and SBS, as well. Um, and I go back to the, the to genesis of of the of the Para. The Para troop was designed as he had to be an absolute maniac animal who the hell jumps out of a plane on the end of a piece of silk lands in the field supposed to be with all his mates finds himself on his own and has to take on a hundred germans all right you've got to be bloody insane so how do you design that kind of animal and so the brits went about designing this particular kind of animal and so he had to have an individualism he had to be well, he had to be absolutely crazy, but he also had to be able to operate by himself and not care about anybody. He had to leave wounded behind because that's the para thing. They just that's their objective. Whereas the Marines, Marines evolved with a completely different um, type of ethos. It was a team concept. It was all working together. And if you look at the uh, the powers and the Marines in my days, that's who they that's where they were. The powers were very much individuals. Um, yes, they all worked together as a team, but they had an individual ethos. Whereas the Marines had this team thing, um, and the, and that evolved into the SAS because I do think the power influences is greater in the SAS than the, than, than any other unit. Yeah, and so you end up with an SAS with a lot of powers with a power mentality, and so. They are, they were in my day much more as of individuals. They were much more um, uh, independent, autonomous in the way that they they operate in the thought. Whereas the SBS again was designed as a team. Everything was team. It was it was a team hitting the beach. It was a team climbing the all platforms. Um, 
And it was only till we then branched out and got into 14 in and other jobs that, you know, I actually spent most of my career, uh, a lot of my career working alone or with just one or two people. Um, so that was that that is that was the general uh, genesis, I think, of of the two ethoses. They are different um, because of where we come from, paras and marines. Um, and I I just love the fact that we have this difference. I love the fact that we've got these two core ethoses. And and if and, and I'd say to anyone, if you want to join the military and you're thinking of the power of the marines, that's where you start with. What's ethos? Am I a team player or I am more of an individual? That understands the team concept but you know can stand alone take that machine gun nest which they bloody well did in the Falklands you know only the powers charging by themselves to wipe out machine gun nest you'd think that was the stuff of second world war but no those guys are around today you know um it's the way they make them I did the I did my um para course in Abingdon by the way that's how far back I go I think I did the last para course and I was attached to 60 paras and it was mayhem. Now, fortunately, the order from the sergeant major of the paras went out and said, anyone touches those Marines, I will personally tear their teeth out because <laughs> they're guests. So no filling them in at every opportunity, which was thankful because there was only about eight of us, I think, and 60 of them. But and but they were insane. I mean, in the mornings, we would march out. They'd be coming out of the first and second floor windows, you know, landing in the lawn, doing forward rolls. And then we had this ridiculous thing where they tried to make us march together up to the airfield, whereas the Marine has the 28-inch long, slow pace, and the Army has this tick-tock 21-inch, whatever it is, pace, which we refused to march at. And even when we were threatened by the para-RSM, you will march like an army. We just said, no, we won't. So they ended up separating us, and us, eight or nine of us, marched (laughs) like the Marines do in a nice, long, slow pace. And the paras were going... But, um, yeah, I think it's a wonderful organisation. Vive la différence is what I say. I'm obviously egalitarian. I don't give a shit about all these silly little arguments that... If if you stack blankets in the military, you, you did as an important job as I did. It's that simple. Mm. The military can't function without each person. So all, I, I bring up these conversations, which are a bit juvenile, but it's only that I know this is what the people like, you know. But uh, I do remember when I was in that balloon up at, is it Abingdon on the green or so? Or someone's yeah. going to... Someone's mm-hmm. going to tell me in the comments. It's not. It's something else. Something else on the green. But I was in that balloon, and uh, I'm a Royal Marine, so I'm going out that door first. And the three baby paras behind me <laughs> shitting themselves, and and that's probably because they're still in their training phase. I I probably got about yeah. three or four years under my belt by then, and I mm. I just turned around to them and went, "I see you guys on the ground." Geronimo! <laughs> but if you know Royal Marines history, you know I had to do that. It, it, I, mm. I couldn't have let a baby para go out of that balloon. But that's taken yeah. no, no, nothing away from them, you know. So, Chris, you reminded me of another record I think I might have. And if anyone on your uh, listening to your podcast 
can can um, beat it, please let me know. And it's just because uh, I've just thrown this out tongue in cheek. But when I when I finished um, Royal Marines, uh, when I just got to the end of my commando training, there was an opportunity to go and do a couple of static line jumps at Dunkerswell Airfield, which is this little airfield just out of Exeter. And so I put my hand up and I did two static line jumps that day out of a Cessna. You just stand outside on the wheel and then you off you go. So then I joined um so then I joined the SBS and um got to the end of my um selection and then went on my uh para course to Abingdon. And I can't remember how many jumps we did. But um but but um but that was it. I I, I did I think 18, 19, 20 jumps on my para course. And then um and then back to the SBS, and then first week, uh, um, they said, right, we're going to Malta to do water jumps. And I thought, brilliant. I'm in the plane, and as I'm in the plane, in the C-130, about 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock in the evening, and Malta's arriving, I just realized something. I turned around to someone and said, you know what, I've never landed in a plane before. <laughs> I've, I've taken off what? 25 times I've never landed in a plane before I thought this is quite amazing I was really quite excited about what's it like to land in a plane and and pretty much as I said it the 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 tailgate of the C-130 opened and the boss came out and he said right he said let's not waste any time we're arriving in Malta we're going to jump in (laughs) so we all kitted up um dry bags shoots and off I went out the back of the tailgate and did my first water jump so then I spent a whole week in Malta doing water jumps, getting on a plane, jumping out. At the end of Malta now, I think, I think I'd done about 33, 34 jumps altogether, altogether, never landed in a plane. <laughs> and then we finally got the C-130 back home and um, we, we landed and it was my first landing. And I, so uh, up until that point, I'd taken off in 33 planes and not landed in one of them. <laughs> yes yes i can relate i can relate to the um taking off x amount of times but only landing it, it became more interesting when i learned to when i learned to fly did you ever do any flying yes i did i got my pilots uh single engine pilot pilot course Yes, that gives us something to talk about. <laughs> not not that we're short of stuff to talk about. I'm I'm pretty sure we could go on all day. Um what what made you want to fly planes? Uh I have no idea. I um I got interested in my Halo course. Um I did a Halo course with uh Bryce Norton and um got into a couple of planes there and I don't know, I was uh, hanging around. It was near the end of my time in the SBS. And uh, so I just wanted something to do. So I went down to Hearn airport. Just, um, I I, I was planning to go to the States. And one of the things I wanted to do was um, set up diving in Florida. And so um, I just wanted to be able to fly. Nothing more than that, really. Um, I I I wish I haven't kept it up for a while, but now that um, uh, we've got a small farm in South Africa and um, up in a place called Nelsprit, and uh, it's... um, I've been there. Yeah, a bunch of my friends have um, 
got various planes and it's it's a it's a way of life there so i should think i'll get back into it when i um spend more time there yeah i actually stayed in now uh before i went to the kruger national park oh that's right um, yeah, you... yeah i was coming i was coming back from working in uh mozambique at the time but uh how was learning to fly in the UK? Because I le- I did learn in Florida, and it and I I got the whole thing done and dusted in well less than a month. Um, my understanding is if you do it in the UK, that can take well you you, you because of the weather and the, the the different regulations that that can take sort of up to a year or or even longer. No, I did mine in about three or four weeks. I did have to um, pause for some weather. And then as soon as I um, got my license, uh, I think it took about four or five weeks, um, I went to Florida and uh, rented a plane there. And all they wanted was a quick check test. I can't remember the the plane, but um, I had to take the owner up in fly for half an hour when i landed he said yeah that's fine and um so then i rented a plane in florida but um yeah the only thing in uk was um it was the weather um um, i have this there's something i have this history that i have um things every time every vehicle every new type of vehicle i go in i crash it's just the way i've been (laughs) <laughs> motorbikes cars um boats i've got this history yeah so anyone with that kind of background you think well why are you taking a pilot's course you must be an absolute idiot and i thought i'm going to defy well defy all that. i'm going to go for it and on my first solo flight you know you have to do a triangulation um your first solo flight it was uh Take off from Hearn Airport, Salisbury, uh, Warminster, back to Hearn. So um, they, that was the thing. They kept putting it off because of bad weather. And I drove to the airfield one day, and I had this um, crazy instructor who was a very funny bloke to fall asleep um, flying next to me. Um, and I think he drank heavily, but, uh, but he was a real character. He, he said, yeah, bugger it. He said, go on, off you go, Rick. He said, look, if the weather comes in, just turn around and come back. But there is a front coming down. And I and and but there'd been such a long gap between me getting into a plane that actually it's like it was if several weeks. I mean, I think I'd forgotten most of what I'd learned. And uh, but I was so keen to get it done that um, I took off. And after I'd done my flight plan, I took off. I'm heading to Salisbury. And I'm now about three and a half thousand feet and I'm coming and I'm, I'm, I'm there is Salisbury and I'm coming into Salisbury. And as I'm approaching it, this weather front comes in and it comes in very fast. And suddenly I've got no viz. And then what happens? My engine starts to go. And I'm going, oh, dear, you know, I've really got a, I think I've got I've started losing height. So I steered, I steered away from what I thought was the city and headed sort of more west towards Warminster Way. And I started losing height and I thought, I'm going, I'm going in. I thought, this is it. My curse, the, the vehicle curse. <laughs> and, and I've survived the motorbike, the boat, you know, the car. But you don't survive a plane crash that easily. I got down to 500 feet and I started to look 
for the field I was going to crash into because the engine was stuttering. And then I just looked at the panel, I think, and I said, there's something you're supposed to do. There is something you're supposed to do. And I then suddenly remembered the carburetor heat lever, which I pulled, which redirects heat onto the carburetor, which is freezing up because of the weather. Yeah. The engine immediately burst into life <laughs> about 500 feet as I was getting ready to Mayday. Now I was completely lost. And, um, and I looked at the map and there are two sort of major roads, highways going from Salisbury to Warminster. And, and I knew that they had to be north of me. So I stayed at about 500 feet. I think I dropped down to about 300 and I carried on heading just due north. And I, come to, I came to what looked like a motorway or dual carriageway. And I thought, that's either the first one or the second one. Um, one goes to Warminster, the other one doesn't. It goes to Bristol or something. So I thought the only way was to go down and, 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 and follow it. So I turned onto it because it was bad weather. I'm now about 100 foot across, above the motorway following it, breaking all the laws, until I saw a signpost to Warminster. I thought, this is it. That's, that's <laughs> So then I followed that, <laughs> got back up to 3,000 feet, and then went back to my calculations and landed in Hearn. And the, my old instructor was in the, um, in the office waiting for me, having a fag and a, and a brandy. And uh, I rolled in. I said, thanks. For, he said, any, any issues? I went, no, it's perfect. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. I, I won't. I won't bore everybody with my stories. I, I, it's, it, it, it's a whole, probably another podcast again, but when my instructor went, right, you want to fly solo? I'm like, yeah. I'm only saying yes because flying solo is a specific part of your flight training. When you get it, it, you know, it, it's a bit like when you're in the Marines and you get your cat comforter, that means you've entered the commando phase of training. It's the same in flying. You, you, they, when you fly solo, you, you've entered this different realm. And it, and, and it actually means from that point on, you can take a plane up on your own. Even though you haven't got a pilot license, you can take a plane up on your own. And I remember I was at an airport called Okeechobee in Florida. And he went, okay, fly solo. <laughs> and as I was taxiing out onto the runway, and definitely as I was taking off, I was thinking, fuck me. Do they know who they're trusting an airplane with? <laughs> they're trusting me with a whole airplane. <laughs> It's interesting, isn't it, that um, it's one of those questions that you always know the answer to. It's like, um, when did you have your first, you know, sort of love affair, you know, first sexual <laughs> experience? Where were you when Kennedy was shot, if you're as old as me? Um, and can you remember being told your first to go solo? And I'll never forget, I was, I was actually doing these circles, take off and landing, take off and landing. And I'm with crap at landing. I just really couldn't get there. There was, you know, it's like, it's like, it's like cycling, you know, when you first can finally cycle without, you know, falling off it. It's that moment. It's that moment in skiing where you suddenly get the move, you know, the hips. Yes. 
And landing is the same thing. You keep doing it. And if you're as retarded as me, it probably takes longer than most. I just couldn't get the hang of it. And the, my instructor said, Paul, he told me to stop on the runway. He got out and he started walking away. I thought, where's he going? And he, he came back as if he'd remembered something. He opened up the door. He said, oh, fly around and come pick me up. Shut the door and walked off. And I sat there. I'm going, I'm going to take off on my own. And I'm a crap at landing. And um, so I did. I took off. And I shall never, ever, ever forget that first run, sight, flight round the airfield and then coming into land, and I landed wonderfully. <laughs> <laughs> my, my instructor, right, here's a basic, for anybody listening that wants to teach people stuff, I, I went through my whole flight training not knowing how to land. And every time I landed, my instructor would just turn to me from the, was it the left seat or the right? I, I can't, I, it was a while ago now. I can't even remember, but he'd go, you're not doing it right. And he'd just shout at me, right? Well, immediately there, there's, there's the problem. If you're ever teaching anyone anything and you're shouting, something is not right. So he's shouting at me. Every time I'm trying to land, he's grabbing the stick because you've got a double, what we call double yoke. So your yoke is what you control your plane with. You've got two of them in a, in a, in, I think you have them in most aircraft, actually. Yeah. I don't even think it's yeah, a training thing. And this guy, he keeps grabbing the yoke off me. Well, here's the thing. What he hadn't taught me is when an aeroplane comes to land, it's not like the Duke's a hazard that it comes down like this. Bang! Right? It's, it's like a swan. It comes in like this, floating. And then it touches down. It's two completely different scenarios. The first one is going to get you killed. The second one means you can probably, you could probably land a 747 once you understand that, that concept. And he, but he couldn't teach me that. And I went for, in the end, I demanded he gave me extra lessons for free because when I realized that he'd not been teaching me right, <laughs> I'm like, I was smashing this aircraft down. It, some, you know, something really wasn't, you know, really wasn't good. But when you suss it and you realize, no, 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 landing is like a bird. It's, you're fluttering in like this and you're adjusting and you're adjust and, and you land on a, you land on a cushion of air and then you touch down and it's a beautiful science. It's just a beautiful science. <laughs> and I didn't get it for the first three weeks. <laughs> yeah. I'm surprised I didn't smash his plane up, but it is, it is the great moment, isn't it? It's that moment when you get it. Um, yes yes do it, do it repeatedly yes yeah duncan let's um th th there's two things i want to talk about let let's take this question first because i get asked this i'm getting asked this an awful lot because i've i've spoken to colin mclaughlin who's former um sas I spoke to Ollie Ollerton the other day. He's the SBS guy who's on the, the program SAS Who Dares Wins. Um, and I'm getting a lot of questions saying, 
what's the difference between the SBS and the SAS boat troop? Not not that I expect you to know everything, Duncan, but do 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 you have any kind of insight into that at all? Um, again, uh, I have no idea what it's like today. Um, but again, uh, if you look back in history, it sometimes gives you a clearer understanding of what might be happening. Um, we used to sort of joke about um, uh, the SAS's boat troop um, that um, if they were ever coming down to play with us, we'd say, let's use their gear. And they go, well, why, why use their gear? We said, well, it's all brand new, never been used. You know, and so that was the joke. Um, and, uh, but it was pretty. It was, I, I don't know, uh, I, met, I met a few guys who worked in the boat troop, but as far as I understand it, they didn't really do very much. And uh, once, the, once the SBS started to show the SAS that it knew what it was doing, because the SAS would sometimes um, come down and play with us, and um, some of these poor lads, uh, look, it, it's not fair. We, we, would, we would work out every morning, and one of the things we'd finish on was there was eight ropes, 30-foot ropes. And my team, the last thing we did, after your hours workout, you did an arms-only eight rope, all eight ropes. So up one, cross to the next, down that one, and then the person behind you following you. So the whole team would follow in a snake. And you weren't allowed to touch the ground when you came down the rope. So basically, you did four 30-foot ropes, arms only. Um, so we were really fit, and we really trained for that. And every now and then, we'd have a poor old sass lad from Boatroo <laughs> would be sent over to join us to play for a week uh, uh, on an exercise and invariably maybe climb an all platform. And so... Fortunately, one of the, you know one or two of the lads, the SAS lads that came over, had done some, had got ready for it because you you just can't turn up and climb an all platform um, if things go wrong. You need to be fit as a butcher's you know dogs. Um, and you really have to have some climbing muscle. you in. You can't. There's this kind of um, I don't know what you call it, but this ladder. It's like a rope ladder. Yeah, caving ladder. Yeah, the concept we had on all platforms, we'd never use anything that the oil platform provided for us to climb. We would always make it ourselves. Um, we'd always go in the worst weather and we'd always, we'd, in case the enemy booby-trapped a ladder or booby-trapped a gateway, and that was our concept. So we'd never go use anything standard. We'd make our own way up. Um, when I first worked with the Navy SEALs and we used to do that, they, they used to, they came back with a saying say, uh, that there was two ways to do something. There was the easy way. And then there was the British way. Um, we took that as a bit of a compliment actually. But um, so, yeah, you imagine climbing uh, uh, one of the big oil fat platforms in the Brent, um, you know, um, in the North sea, uh, mostly caving ladders, um, sometimes a bit of dumaring, you know, which is, um, up a rope where the Jumar clips onto the rope and you kind of walk up, but you need practice on it. You know, you need, so, um, so the, generally a lot of the advanced stuff that the SBS was doing, the SAS boat troop couldn't really, they didn't have the equipment or the need really to do it. They were busy doing aircraft and buildings. And so their boat troop, sort of fell behind really in 
a lot of the skills. And it's totally understandable if you think the stars that the SBS was reaching for with their particular skills and, this, and, the, and the equipment and the development of our stuff, um, um, the, the SAS was concentrating on other things. But they maintained the boat troop, and that's basically all it was. It was, it was boats, you know. And uh, they used to get a lot of stick. I mean, their famous story in the Falklands, um, where the, the, the SAS lads got on down in South Georgia, they got onto a boat. One of the Gemini's brought the engine in, and then they did the classic. Um, this is this is not a dig at the SAS. It's just a funny sort of ditty, and but it just shows a little bit of inexperience. They disconnected the bow line before they started the engine. So, and there they were floating away from the ship and all you could hear in the evening was the, I, I wasn't on it, but the story was, you know, and you could hear them trying to start the engine, which they never did. <laughs> so never disconnect the bow line <laughs> until you got the engine going. You know I mean? It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a real basic one. So yeah, the resident used to get a bit of stick for their lack of experience. Um, surely, surely geographically, I mean, if you're in Hereford, which is, say for argument's sake central england on the border of wales and england there ain't a lot of sea there (laughs) no and can you believe at one time there was talk that we were going to amalgamate um and i think it got quite serious at one point um uh, i remember we sitting saying are we really going to move to hereford and it was absolutely ridiculous because yeah we we need to be near the ocean i mean the mini subs were coming in, so they were saying, "Well, we'll just drive to them." And I thought, "Do you? It's miles to the nearest piece of ocean, seventy odd miles, but not the piece of ocean that we want as well. So we need different pieces of ocean." So that's a, and and for a long time, you know. The other thing I was going to bring up uh, as well, um, that the, the difference between the SAS and the regiment was again in my day the representation in London. If you went to the special forces committee in London 30 or 25 years ago, um, there was one SBS bloke, maybe not even, it might be several Navy people, but who weren't SBS. And then the rest was army, but mostly SAS. So they had a big say in what was going on. And that had to change for the SBS to start getting its foot in the door. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, all the juicy ops coming in were snapped up by the regiment. That was another thing that was going on that that led to this animosity, if you like, or this rivalry. Um, you know. Yeah, that's the problem, isn't it? Is from a kind of um, let's let's call it a grassroots infantry perspective. Both the SBS and the SAS do can do the same job. You know, if it's crawling into a hide and or or an OP observation post. With the binoculars, they they're both well positioned to do that. Yeah, the only difference is um, is them specialising in in airframes, if you like, and um, and the SBS specialising in um, maritime. Mm. Um, but they still cross each other. I mean, look at the Narwhal in the Falklands, the first ship ever to be sunk by after being captured from the air in the history of warfare was an SBS guy uh, uh, operation, but two SAS lads came along to do the, the demolitions. Not that the SBS couldn't have done it. Um, so they try and, you know, and, and there's loads of stories of such cross-pollination in, um, 
in the Middle East and uh, and, the, and the recent wars. So yeah, there's there's not a lot to define them these days. I think I, I don't know. As I say, I'm not current. Um, be interesting to get a current point of view on that. But yeah. but the the yes, the podcast is open to anyone to come and chat with me. And uh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I just I just got full respect for for, for all services really. Yeah. Yeah, me too. It's the government where I think. <laughs> yes, but that's another another story again. Duncan, can we talk about Northern Ireland? Because it, you know, that that was my theatre of war. Um, it it was a unique time to, for, for for many of us, and it was also on the landscape of, of the military experience over there, it, it, it seems very, it's not that it seems very different for everyone, but it, it's obviously interwoven with politics, with technology, as in like w- what kind of bombs were going off at what time, and, and, but also military strategy, as in, were the IRA using snipers and, you know, IEDs and all this kind of stuff. So I'm fascinated to hear your, um, your experience of being over there. Yeah. The other thing I think the other um, label um, you need to add to there was history as well. Um, and, and that's something I didn't, that was what was missing from my, understanding I, I was apolitical like most blokes who um i had no interest in 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 politics and no interest in at that at that stage in our history and i knew nothing about northern ireland um it wasn't since i left that i decided to actually learn a bit more and understand the background of the whole place and became a little bit more understanding of it but um yeah my experiences were what you asking from an sf point of view or Whatever you feel comfortable talking about, let let's just chat about that. I mean, I mean, um, again, the the SBS were trying to invent themselves, reinvent themselves in my early days, and so it was quite a farce. Um, my first um, trip to um, Northern Ireland because it was like the SBS woke up one morning and said, "Right, we're going we're going to play in that game. We're going to the SAS are over there." They've been officially sent over there. The SBS, SAS, uh, the SBS are going to go over there. And it was a farce, and it actually seemed a farce to me then. Um, we were trying to come up with all SBS-type things to do. And we were ridiculous. Um, things like coming off boats and to do a recce on land, say, uh, around Donegal area, you know, um, dropping off by submarine canoes or, or a fishing boat. You know, I mean... You, there were so many easier ways to get <laughs> to that beach, you know, get a cab, you know, get, get a van and park up and just yomp in there. Why do we have to go by submarine, you know, launch from the submarine? And it's, this is not, you know, this is not, it's not Mamanks, you know, it's, just, it's not Russian sort of snipers and, and it was ridiculous. And, 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 and obviously, Obviously, a canoe capsized on the way, and the whole operation was a nightmare. Um, another famous one, um, Loch Ney. We had to. They decided we're going to we're going to cover the boats 
uh, the Irish boats coming into this inlet because we want to sort of monitor them because we think that the Irish are moving weapons across Loch Nade to avoid going on the roads. Big deal, you know. So, okay, great, fine. This is an operation. So instead of coming up with a sensible, putting an OP somewhere so that we could get in and see them, we had to do an SBS operation, which had to, therefore, it had to involve... Uh, H2O, you know, we have to bring water into this somewhere. <laughs> okay, um, so let's, so someone said, let's get into our dry bags and let's send, set up an OP in the reeds of this inlet. Not not on a dry piece of land across there where we, you know, no, we let's do it in the reeds because then we're SBS <laughs> and therefore that's who we are and, and it just, yeah, okay, great. So, the whole thing was planned out. So glad I didn't have to go in this and I could watch from the side as this complete farce unraveled. But the two or three guys left the LUP a lie-up position, which is where I was, and they went down in their dry bags through the reeds. Um, this is about four o'clock in the morning in darkness, making their way through the reeds. And then they set up a floating table uh, which was prearranged, and so so they sat there on these like on these stool things that they bought, and they brought with them. And, and on on this floating table was was they making some sandwiches, flask, and of course binoculars and recording equipment to record and cameras to to to, to record these the boat coming in. And so they got to the edge of the reeds, and it was about five foot deep, and so there were. They couldn't sit, so they were standing there up to their chest with all this floating stuff. And then the first boat came out of the, the, the little dockyard there and along and came bombing along and, and sent a four-foot bow wave <laughs> into the reeds, which <laughs> completely wrecked everything. Everything was lost. All the, all the stuff, you know, the blokes were flooded. Everything went upside down. So that was the OP wreck. I mean, and they just walked back out now with no gear, you know, um, or whatever they could salvage and get back to the drawing board. Uh, now, the regiment, my, in my book, I think I wrote, the regiment had their own fire. I just tried to, when I wrote my book, I decided I'm not going to make it too serious. But then, of course, once you start dealing with the things that went wrong with the people who died um, and you realize, yes, it, it was a serious thing. But um, but there were so many ridiculously farcical attempts to justify one's existence, and so my early days of Northern Ireland were quite um, quite ridiculous, really. In did you get any like hands-on contacts over over there, or was everything clandestine? Oh yeah, we had um, we had um, a fair share of. Um, of uh, of incidences. Now I, I got in trouble with the DSS um, and and rightly so for getting straight. It was my interpretation of a, an operation, um, and I have to make state state that in my book I did make it sound as if we went on assassinations and hits, and that's that's not technically true because the, we didn't do that. What we did do was go ahead and attempt to arrest arresting people that we knew would never be arrested. Mm. 
and I hope you appreciate the subtle difference. So, um, so if you're going to, basically, if you're, if you were going to go arrest someone around someone's house and you knew that they were a big, horrible monster with clubs and axes and they were going to kill any policeman that came to the door. And then you told a couple of policemen, go and arrest those people knowing that they, they're going to need some kit. And they're, so they're going to get dressed up and they're going to have all the right gear stung. <laughs> well, it was the same with us. So we would, we would go off and do operations where the aim was to actually um, arrest, prevent the incident from taking place and, and take the people to face justice. But as we all know, a lot of those IRA boys were tough, very tough individuals and many of them would never, ever surrender. Um, they would never go down without a fight. And so you went to the arrest knowing that there's no such thing as an arrest. Mm. And it's basically, then it came down to who was going to shoot first. And so it then morphs into the planning. So then the planning starts to look more and more like an ambush because I'm not going to say halt to a guy with an M16 with his finger on the trigger and wait for him to shoot the first shot before I open fire. So do you understand it? So it's a bit, a bit subtle. Oh. So, so yes, we went on um, various arrest operations, um, which turned into um, gun battles and dead people. Did that affect you at, at all, Duncan? Uh, I mean, I don't want to get per- well. May- maybe personal is 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 where it's at, but I. I mean, I was eight. I was eight. I was nineteen in Northern Ireland. Like you said, I was apolitical. I didn't know shit. You know, I was just told these are the bad guys. These, and I still I'll make. And under those constraints, you know, you're a British serviceman, you're told to do this job, you're told, and they would say to us, guys, you're going on patrol tonight, you're in this area, if you come across an IRA patrol, let them have it. But if you come across a UDR or, you know, an Ulster Defence Regiment patrol, We'll leave it up to you. <laughs> I mean, it, it's fucking shit, really, from a anything perspective. And I'm just trying to play my old guy card here now. I don't. I, I'm. I'm for peace, love, humanity. There's ways we can solve differences without resorting to bombs, bullets, and guns. Most of which are sold by, by, you know, the Americans, the Swedish, the French, and the British. Anyway, um, yeah. What? 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 I don't know what. I, I probably lost the thread of what I'm trying to say. But well, let me put it in perspective for me. I, I, I'm not. Um, you know, I, I, to justify for myself, why was I? To look back and justify why was I happy to fight against the IRA? Who, for me, were Irish, and if you look at the famine and that, they were pretty damn justified in a lot of the things that um, that they didn't believe in. But I had to draw the line, which I, which is the one 
thing I use with all terrorism and where I'm happy to go for terrorists. And that is that if you're going to kill innocent people, especially mothers with children, you know, just to extend your political, political argument, I will stand up every time and say, you can't do that. Mm. You, you can't, if you want to be heard, don't put a bomb in a pub and kill a load of people that really don't know anything about your problem, don't know anything about what's going on about it. They just want to get and live their lives very much the same way you lot do, but you've just killed them all. And I will do everything in my power to stop you from doing that. And if you want to be heard, go through and do it through the proper means, through the courts, through political stance, whatever. But but don't. And so that was that was me. So as soon as the bombs were going off in London, I, I didn't need any justification for what um, I didn't need to. I didn't care about the the stories of woe in Ireland uh, at that age. Um, I just said you, you can't be putting bombs anywhere and blowing up people just because you you're upset that you haven't got your you know that no one's listening to you and that was it and so armed with that justification i was very happy as far as the stress thing um it's very interesting question that um and i've just you know i went on to to spend more of my life in war zones when i was outside of the sbs um and doing some crazier things but the the, the same answer is is that you don't really realize um the stress that kind of is building up in you until something happens i um, always felt that i was immune to it i just i was regarded as a very cold individual very cold-hearted um very ruthless i had um i had no qualms about doing uh, anything really um but I and I thought I was immune to all the the anxieties and the the um, the after effects of it all. And then I discovered sometimes a, a bit later that I actually really wasn't. And it was sometimes innocent things that happened. Um, I remember one event that really um, showed me that I was under a tremendous amount of stress and strain was um, when I was uh, in 14 in and worked a lot on my own and driving everywhere and going to places where you're not supposed to go. Um, just, where, where just, just for the people at home, mate, let, uh, 14 in is the British Military Intelligence Service. Basically, very professional, dedicated, uh, let's just say forward-thinking individuals from the british military that then volunteer for the intelligence service and they will be put into incredibly dangerous situations for example in northern ireland where they're living in the community obviously pretending to be a local or or, or whatever duncan i'm sorry to interrupt you but yeah no that, that's more or less it. intelligence gatherers um and um uh, it's a very extremely difficult place to operate in, in, in Ireland because the, the Irish are really very smart, very sharp, no different than we are. Um, and um, 
no, you really couldn't live amongst them. Um, that's a bit of um, bit of Hollywood. Um, yes, there were cases of individuals, but most of these were recruited, um, and so their 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 background was from that place, or they lived there and they were turned. But for to train a, a Brit uh, intelligence officer and then put them into the environment. Um, the same, you know, the same organization worked in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, operating amongst the locals. And just as they couldn't become an Afghanistan or an Iraqi um, exactly in moving them to an apartment, you know, and start going to the local mosque, um, unless you were um, from there, um, we couldn't do that in Northern Ireland, which actually makes it even more difficult, if you think, because... Um, you just can't afford to be sick. Driving through Cross Glen, you went through once, if you had to. You came back within the same day, you'd probably pick up a tail. And if you and if you were on your own, you'd better get the hell out of there because they will have organised a roadblock up for you up front and, um, and you're a dead man. So um, the Ardbow was another place. The Ardbow was... Um, northwest of Loch Ney area, and it was completely out of bounds to the military. The military never used to go in there. It was so dangerous because it was very tiny roads and tiny lanes, and the IRA loved ambushing um, the military convoys there. But um, I used to drive through there all the time. Um, but the big danger was um, illegal VCPs, vehicle checkpoints set up by the IRA. And if you ever met one, um, I had one friend who um who got caught in one um and uh he he was just driving along this narrow lane it was the end of an operation it was about 11 o'clock at night they were after one guy in particular and couldn't um never he never turned up anywhere so they called it and he was coming out of the yard bow and he ran into this vcp and there was three ira guys in camouflage on the road pointing weapons at him and our training, what we used to do in those situations was um, we used to carry an Ingram M10. Do you know what that is? A Colt Ingram. Um, it's a box. It's a machine gun. Um, now, your standard SMG fires about 650 rounds per minute. An Ingram, uh, the 9 millimeter Ingram, could fire 1,000 rounds per minute. Was it not? I'm, I'm, I'm just. Yeah, I fired one on the range. I think it was before going to Northern Ireland. Not, not, not that we had any any call to use one, right? What I do remember is it was really shit. Is it? Am I remembering that right for stoppages, or or maybe? Uh, it, yeah, it, it could have. The reason why it wasn't perfect uh, for us was because it was designed for the American nine millimeter um, round, which the standard military nine millimeter round has less grains. And so it's for its standard. Ah. And the UK nine millimeter parabellum, which is, has more grains. Um, it, it tended to crack the breach of the Ingrams um, prematurely. And therefore, when the Ingram was used with, with UK ammunition, um, 
it, it statistically had a higher stoppage rate. Um, it also was completely out of control and would fire wildly up and to the right, like most um, SMGs. But because this was only the size of a biscuit packet, you know, a small small thing, it was wild. Anyway, this was our standard weapon, mainly because it had such a high rate of fire. And our standard um, procedure in these situations, we used to carry the Ingram, um, uh, 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 just in the paper, under, under a cloth, anything inside a bag, wherever you fancied it, that you could get your hand on it really quickly with the safety catch off. And that was another problem because it, it had a very weak safety catch. Um, one of our guys like went over a bump once, a heavy bump on the bridge, and the gun went off next to his seat and fired through the back seat. I mean, these sort of things happen, you know. Anyway, this guy screeched the car to a stop, ripped out his M10, put it on the dashboard. Um, sorry, no, whacked his car into reverse with the clutch on, put the M10 on the dashboard, and then just fired through his windscreen as he reversed up this bowling alleyway of a, of a country lane and emptied the entire magazine into these two guys. It was two guys on the checkpoint and got over the brow of the hill as they returned fire. And um, the thing that was amusing was when he got back to the camp, he survived. He managed to keep going backwards until he could find somebody to do a J-turn and move off. We got back, special branch came in and they said they'd been down to the area. And he said, you actually shot all three of them. And this guy said, well, no, there was only two. He said, no, you shot the cutoff on your way out who was lying in the bush. And he said, yeah, my weapon shot off to the right, you know, as the last few rounds went off. And he shot the, my experience in the Ardbo was um, shortly after that, um, I was coming down about 1130 at night. Um, and I came over this rise, and there, as I came over this rise, a car reversed out and blocked the road right in front of me, and I screeched to a halt. And if 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 I could stop the world just then at that moment, which it did for me, it only stopped for half a second, but it felt like a century. I knew that this was over. I was really in the shit because this was a complex ambush. I they timed it perfectly i was right in the ambush that meant the cutoffs were either left or right and behind me and i was well and truly screwed and i grabbed my m10 and i was about to open fire when the door of the car opened and my brain took in this big fat woman in a flowery dress waving at me and just enough for me not to pull the trigger because I just knew that this wasn't an ambush. Something in my brain (laughs) said to me, these aren't aren't what you see in an ambush, a fat lady in in a flowery dress. What it was, she lost control of the car coming out of her house and it had backed down the drive and as I was coming and blocked the road and she was apologizing to me. Um, (laughs) And I just sat there for a moment, just recovering. And, and I think about two years of pressure just started to slowly find their way out through cracks in me. And uh, I put my gun down. I waved at her. She drove back up in the yard. I drove past her. 
And I was a slightly different person when I got back that night um, and got back to the grot. And that's when I realized that, yeah, there, there are pressures out there that you don't see. And it sometimes takes something like that, which isn't a big war story. My gosh. <sighs> Upon leaving the forces then, uh, Duncan, I'm really conscious that we haven't even scratched the surface. We haven't talked about your, your, your work, which I know is taking you all around the world. Your writing, which is um, certainly to me, it, you know, uh, just a whole, a whole nother subject to gain, a fascinating subject. Um, but let's maybe take that in a, in a second podcast. Yeah. Should we just finish by saying how did your military service affect you? Uh, I mean, we're in a climate now of, of, of veteran suicide. We, we, I guess we're talking PTSD. Um, there's a big unknown there in as far as like what causes PTSD. For example, people like myself, um, if, if, if I've never been diagnosed with PTSD, I've never even really sort of claimed to have it. But what I would say is if I did, I fucking had it from childhood. <laughs> like I had, a, I had a tough childhood that, that traumatized me. Right. And mm. so I just think it's a really, you know, the more we can talk about this subject and, and, and open up open up any areas of, of information to people because mm. I, I, I guess people have this idea of PTSD, like you go into a conflict in a war zone, your mates get hit and you go through and, and that gives you PTSD. And I'm kind of figuring it's way more complex than that. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think you put it in a nutshell. There really is. A, I, I see it a bit like um, PTSD. I would, I would, I would make it similar to the way that we look at this COVID-19 at the moment. Um, There are people who think they've had it, but don't know. And then there are people who are dead from it. And those are the two extremes. And I think you can get every degree of uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome uh, from a, a mere touch, which you're not even sure you've had it, to escaping it completely, to going over the top. I, I, I didn't know anything about it when I was in the mob. We never really talked about it that much, even though, strangely enough, um, the UK military was actually one of the most advanced, as I understand it, one of the most advanced militaries in the world for managing PTSD. And I think that came from the First World War, um, where we quite happily um, executed anyone with shell shock, you know, uh, after accusing them of cowardice when we didn't understand that they were actually going through trauma. Um, but in, in my day, we didn't really get it. I, 14 in had actually quite a high rate of people who needed hospitalization after for mental problems. Um, one of our, one of my mate, well, it wasn't my mate. It was my uh, second in command. And, um, he was seemed completely normal 
everything. And he did get a little sort of like stressed and tense. And then he left us and joined the Hong Kong police. And uh, next report was he was in a mental uh, institution. He cracked up completely. And they said it was all down to his experiences in Ireland. Um, loads of cases where um, a really good, um, a really good friend of mine uh, who joined um, SBS Selection with me, lovely bloke, big, powerful monster of a Scotsman. And he, um, after my failed ambush on Francis Hughes, um, uh, a few months before with Annette, my SAS partner, uh, we were sent to the wrong house by a special branch. Um, we sat waiting for him for three nights and he'd been home one night of those three, half a mile away. And he'd come in the back door where I'd been sitting, 19 years old, shitting myself. Francis Hughes was the same age as me. In the book, folks. <laughs> Francis Hughes was the same age as me, actually. In fact, I think I was a couple of weeks older than him. A few months later, um, going back to your boundary thing, there was a 14-in OP, and um, the UDR, it was out of bounds. And you, what we used to do in those days, if you, if you put in an, op, uh, an observation position, even, in, even for 14-int, we we would need a QRF, which is a quick reaction force, to come and help us if something went wrong. And we would utilise nearby forces because they were the easy, nearest and quickest. 14 in didn't have a QRF. There was only 20 of us for the whole of Southern, Island, uh, Southern Northern Ireland. I didn't, just, didn't slip and say Southern Ireland then. Um, the, so we utilised local forces, and UDR we'd sometimes use, which was the Ulster Defence Regiment made up of locals. and we would give them an envelope. Our liaison officer would give their boss an envelope and it was sealed only to be opened in the event of a contact. And so if our guys um, had a problem, got a message, contact, 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 the, the ops desk would immediately get a message to the QRF and give them, and they were allowed then to open the envelope and find out where we were. And then they would rush to try and save us. Wow. On, this on this particular occasion, the UDF commander was obviously bored that night, and the quick reaction force were in their grot, sitting around, having cups of tea, whatever. And there was the envelope, and they said, shall we see where they are? And so they opened it and found out where the OP was. What's worse is they also told other patrols going out where the 14-int lads were. And so this one particular U UDR patrol went out looking for them. It was an out-of-bounds area where they not only steamed over the <laughs> opened the envelope to find out where they are, they actually went to look for them. How crazy is that? I mean... There's some really stupid people out there. And the 14-int lads, two of them, um, had to um, – they realised they were almost shot the UDR first time because they thought it was an IRA patrol, realised it was UDR, and then put in a message saying, these idiots are here. Can you tell them to get out of the out-of-bounds area? 
The next patrol to come along to the OP wasn't UDR, it was Francis Hughes. Francis Hughes, um, the 14 the, the lads thought it was the UDR. And so instead of opening up, as they should have done, and whacking Francis Hughes, they said halt. And Francis Hughes went everywhere with an M16 with his safety catch off and his finger on the trigger. He just emptied the magazine at them. Killed one of the 14-inch lads and shot the other one. The lads managed to shoot back and they caught Francis in the leg. And he went down. And the rest of his patrol ran away and left him. The first people on the scene was my good friend, my Scottish friend, who I joined the SBS with. And he was absolutely livid, but he had been slowly i talked to him afterwards he'd been slowly coming down with ptsd the pressures of the job had been slowly getting to him he he hadn't recognized it he's a very big strong powerful sort of mentally physically guy you know so no one ever really we weren't looking for it in those days we didn't look for it in each other no one spotted it in him he turned up and he saw one of the guys dead and the other one wounded and he went for a walk. It was still about two o'clock in the morning. He went for a walk and he found Hughes in the bushes. And he picked him up and he got out his revolver and he, he wanted to shoot him. But a British Army patrol was now arriving because this, this May Day had gone out to the military and was arriving at the scene. And Jock couldn't knew that he couldn't get away with executing out of anger um, Hughes, and so he took Hughes for a quick, brisk walk around the fields to try and get him to bleed to death. And um, I mean, we're just talking about a personal story. This was not sanctioned at all. This is not the way that we operate. This is this is this is not how we operate. This is this is wrong. Yeah. I mean, everyone knows it's wrong. It, it's just what the pressures of of the business, which is what you asked me. Mm. And this was not what Jock was like. He wasn't that kind of person. He was really, really hey, sort we of... All, we, we, we all did stuff that we shouldn't have done. Yeah, and anyway, he, he, got, he stopped and, uh, and he realised the errors of his way. So he didn't do anything. He just lost control for a moment to himself but he was still bubbling and still no one noticed it and he went back to his uh, camp with the lads and it was on an airfield um, near a place called Bally Kelly and it's all porter cabins you know prefab the camp was and Jock all the lads went into the ops room and to their grots or to the bar. Jock went in to make himself a cup of tea. And he, he, had, his, he had a rifle with him, his M16. And he sat in the galley with his tea and then started firing his M16 in every, <laughs> every direction. And, of course, everyone else in the camp... Rounds are going through the porter cabins, you know, or bouncing off and this, and everyone hit the deck and said, what the hell are we under attack? 
And finally, someone realised that no, it's 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 Doc. He's he's having a moment in in the galley, and um, he carried on shooting for about four or five minutes, just letting off rounds, firing at firing frying pans, anything in the kitchen, just until he had expended his magazine. And then one of the guys had got to the door, just opened it and said, Jock, is it safe to come in now? And Jock just said really calmly, he said, yep, I'm done now. Yep, come on, I'm done. And they come in and they, they have basically took him away to the white coats, if you like, you know. And um, it's a very strange thing what happens inside our heads, you know, and, and how yes. it manifests. But... My later years in um, taking civvies, mostly news networks, CNN and people like that, to the worst hellholes in the world, I was really exposed to post-traumatic stress syndrome. In others, seeing seeing how it's manifested. Civvies, people who weren't even... Can you imagine getting a bunch of civvies who weren't even trained for this? They were just trained to be a cameraman, a producer, a sound man, you know and suddenly they and they go yeah 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 I'll, I'll, yeah I'll go to a war zone and have no idea what they're doing and suddenly you end up in the Sunni triangle surrounded by 2,000 people who want to kill you and you'll see PTSD just pouring out of people um, you know distress or afterwards and that was the most interesting period of my life exposed to war zones but with a bunch of civvies and people that weren't really many in many cases even understanding where they were and what they were doing there Duncan gosh I'm, well, I'm going to say two things first of all I don't think I've ever laughed so much during a podcast it's so great to, uh, just to talk to you and for me, it's talking to a fellow Marine. Um, also, as I said, I, I'm conscious we didn't talk about so much other stuff in your life. It, it's We've talked two hours now, and, and the honest truth is, from a podcast point of view, at that point, people are like, they've got their family to go and deal with, they've got to go to work, they've got to... So, so, which is no discredit to, to either of us. What it means is I think we should pick this up again. So to anybody listening, uh, put your comments for me and Duncan in the questions and, and we will pick them up next time. Um, yes, your book, First Interaction, thoroughly recommended, best-selling book. Is there anything you want... You want to add to that, Duncan? Any? I, I yeah, know uh, actually, thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much for pushing the uh, book. Um, that 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 book there takes you up to the um, the day I left, basically um, special forces. Uh, I'm actually now writing part two, and that actually begins with the the next day uh, and a phone call um, to begin a rather interesting series of jobs for a very interesting group of people in london and uh yes but i'll push that i'm only halfway through that book so it'll probably be another few months before i'm done but uh chris thank you very much it's been lovely talking to a a, a bootneck um um it's always a pleasure without without a doubt thank you very much for inviting me
Uh, well, as I said, let's, um, you know, I didn't mention that you've written, you've written what, is it eight, eight fictional books now in a, in a, in a series? Uh, ten. Ten. That probably doesn't mean anything to people at home, but you need to understand each book you write, it's, it's a year of your life. That is it. Is it it's full time. To write 10 is incredible, um, you know, it's an incredible achievement. <laughs> so as an author, just, just, I, 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 I just can say thank you and respect to that because I, I know how much effort it takes. Um, yes. And life, while we're all doing all this writing, life still, you know, our life still, still goes on. So, um, Duncan, yes, thank you massively for joining us. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. It really, uh, it's, 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 it's brought uh, mainly smiles to my faces, but, but also a bit of holy horror. Um, will you come back and chat with us again? Oh, I'd absolutely love to, yes. Thank you very much for the invite. Good. And now you can go for a swim in that that sea behind you yes i'm just going to pop off into there now and uh um i'll see you landlubbers another time hopefully yes. just duncan just stay on the line I'll, I'll i'll say goodbye goodbye to our listeners and watchers and and um yeah let me just do that so friends thank you ever so much for watching another edition of the bought the t-shirt podcast massive thank you to our guest duncan faulkner for yeah i don't need to say it wow um please like and subscribe and we'll see you next time thank you friends thank you for listening to the bought the t-shirt podcast please like subscribe and share and don't forget to follow me on social media username chris thrall instagram chris dot thrall thank you